Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. We're going to be talking about what it means to be chosen by the Lord of the Sabbath. We talk about who is the chosen one and why has he chosen us. Chosen by the Lord of the Sabbath for real rest. So I'm going to pray for us and uh, we'll jump into Matthew chapter 12. I'll probably start reading in Matthew chapter 11 just to give us the context so we don't miss it there. But let me pray. Father, thank you so much that we get to gather in your name. Thank you for God's people. Thank you for uh, folks that aren't yet part of your family, but they're curious. And so they would tune in or come to this campus. Um, God, I just pray you'd have a message for each one of our hearts today. We're going to look at some things that have been true um, since before time began. But they're truths that you need us to know and hear today. And so I pray, not knowing uh, letters that came in the mail, conversations that happened in homes, uh, thoughts that are happening in people's minds, what's going on at work or with kids or with health or any of that, that you would have a, a divine conversation with every person that hears us open your word today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want you to think about your life as a whole and ask yourself the question, when have you been the most exhausted? Some of you are like, to this morning, it's a miracle that I'm here. And I was thinking about that for myself, and I remember uh, about five or six years ago, I had gone to Shanna. Shanna's always been a, a runner, just kind of a recreational. She enjoys that. And we had gone on a vacation with some of our kids and took a picture, and I'm not like against the dad bod. I'm not like having some midlife crisis, but I had my arms around both my kids, and my gut was hanging over my belt. And I was like, all right, that's enough. And I tend to be 110% or zero. It's kind of how I work on the scale of energy level. And so I walked into our bedroom. I said, Shanna, I'm running a marathon. <laughs> she looked at me and said, why don't you run a half marathon? Like, simmer down a little bit. I, at that point, I don't think I'd even run a 5K. Uh, maybe I'd done the one that our church had done uh, before. But um, I said, I'm doing a marathon. I said, everybody runs a half marathon. They just ended up running a marathon anyways. Let's just knock them both out at once because you run 13.1 and running 26.2. But I had never even run 13 miles at one time ever. And uh, we started doing the training together. We go, we run the first marathon. Our goal was just to finish. Um, we weren't necessarily trying to set any, you know, records or anything like that. Um, whatever we did would be a personal best because we had never done it before. And so we got out there, uh, we ran, uh, we were happy with how it went. Um, didn't go as fast as we could possibly go, but kind of enjoyed the race. I was high-fiving DJs and, you know, talking to people as we were running through. And, um, we got done and my wife realized how close she was to qualifying for Boston when we weren't really trying to run as fast as we could. And she said, I want, I want to run the Boston Marathon. And I was thinking, yeah, I'm done. Lost the weight. I'm good. And she goes, will you run with me to train to get, now let's run for speed. I was like, all right, fine, we'll do it. I'm trying to be a good husband, you know, get into this thing. And so we signed up for our second marathon. We start doing the training and all right, I'm running faster. I started realizing my diet was a bigger problem. <laughs> you can't just outwork your diet and do all those kinds of things. And um, she gets injured as we get really close to the race. And so she can't, I didn't even want to run this race. Now I've paid for this race. I'm signed up. I've done the training. I might as well do it to do that a lot of things in life. It's like, I'll just see what happens. And so I go out there. Uh, big problem was this. Uh, Shanna, <laughs> not my just emotional support, she's my pacer. <laughs> because I'm 110 or zero, if she doesn't say, hey, slow down there, killer. Save that energy for the end. You're going to need that. I just kind of, in the moment, start going. So we get to this race, and they've got pacer groups that you run with, and I kind of had a time in mind, and I was with that group, and about mile 10 or so, I was like, 
I can go faster than this. I ran up to the next group. I'm running with them. And I'm thinking, these guys are actually kind of slow. What was I thinking? I should probably try and catch the next group. Have you ever heard of the wall? It's a medical, metaphorical, it's like the statement that runners use like when all your energy sapped. And there's like science behind it and all that. And some of you know, and you're going to email me. I love it. It's great. But when you hit the wall, you just can't go. I remember in the first race at the 20 mile mark, people started dropping like flies, like off in yards, laying down, stretching out, you know, EMTs, like all kinds of stuff. And I was like, oh man, this is too bad for them because I wasn't going as fast as I could go. And this race was going faster than I should go. And usually people hit the wall in a marathon about mile 20 because most training stops at 20 and the rest of it um, you've prepared your body for but you've never done. At about mile 14, I started to struggle. <laughs> I was running with a guy who was trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon. He started walking. I was like, oh, I thought he was better than me. Now he's walking? Then I ran into a pole. was not a highlight of my um, time. I won't tell the end of the race, but it was on a Sunday. And don't judge me, because I know a bunch of y'all skip church for all kinds of stuff. But as a pastor, I didn't want anybody to know that I was out there running. <laughs> I ended up in the emergency room <laughs> across the street from where our church was meeting at the time. That was, no, thank you, Lord, humbling. But about mile 18, I was too proud to quit, but I was out of energy. I'm walking. I walk over to an aid station. I grab an orange, and I had remembered when I was signing up for the race that they were real strict about you can only drop your trash by the aid stations. If you put it on the course, you'll be disqualified. For some reason in my mind, I thought, I can't quit, but if they disqualify me, I have to stop. So I'm like throwing orange peels on the track. See that? Did you see that over here? I hit the wall. The problem for me was I was running at too fast of a pace for too long. It wasn't sustainable. That's why some of you are exhausted. In uh, race cars, they call it redlining. There's an RPM thing on a lot of your cars, and it'll tell you how many, how many rotations per minute your tires are going, and there's a spot that you're not supposed to be in the red spot very long. <laughs> and some of us, we just go there and we stay there. And you learn in running, there are other factors that can cause you to run on energy too. Sometimes it's topography. It's a whole lot easier to run downhill than it is up. Sometimes it's the weather. So these external circumstances, it's a lot easier to run with the wind at your back than it is with the wind in your face. Sometimes it's because you're carrying extra weight, whether that's on your body or it's the clothes you're wearing or something that you actually pack that you shouldn't have. You see some of these really intense, uh, you know, CrossFitters that intentionally carry weights. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, and all that translates to life. And so some of us um, are exhausted because we're going at too fast of a pace. Some of us, it's because of all the stuff that's happening, call it the weather, or circumstances, some of us were carrying burdens. And they might not be physical weight, but emotional burdens, bitterness, financial burdens, relational burdens. And today's message is for you. Because we're talking about being chosen for rest. What's happening in Matthew chapter 12 is that uh, Jesus has obviously started his public ministry, remember 40 days of fasting, and he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And then this guy, it's a relative of his. We don't know if it's his cousin. We'll just call him his cousin, John the Baptist. He's preaching this message. He's kind of this rogue, prophetic preacher who abstains from everything, and he wears crazy clothes, and he comes from out in the wilderness. He's like real granola. And he comes in, repent. And a lot of people don't like that message. Some people did. People are lining up to get baptized. He baptizes Jesus. 
And God the Father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist is the one who baptized him. Then Jesus preaches, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, uh, probably the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you are going to go to Israel with us in June. Uh, we're going to go to that spot where that sermon was preached and talk through some of those lessons. And Jesus goes after a bunch of the stuff that's in the Ten Commandments, like adultery and murder. But he gets to the heart. And he says some things that would be really offensive to especially a certain group of people. Imagine you lived your whole life to build your reputation. <laughs> whether that's your social media platform or what church people think about you or what mom and dad are going to say. And then Jesus steps in, preaches the most powerful message anyone's ever heard, and in the midst of it points at you and goes, you got to be better than that guy. They're offended. And then Jesus, after the Sermon on the Mount, starts to live this stuff out. In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, the guy who said, behold, the Lamb of God, he must increase, I must decrease, he's struggling with doubt. And he's asking the question, is Jesus really the Christ? Have you ever struggled with doubt? And the context of the passage we're going to look at today would be really encouraging to you. You've got John the Baptist struggling. And look at it in Matthew 11. I'll, I'll even start. Verse 2 um, says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for somebody else? You're not doing, see the problem was a lot of people had expectations that when the Messiah came, he was going to overthrow the government and change the economy. <laughs> a lot of us put hope too in that taking place. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. And then what he says next is significant. And if you don't know the Old Testament, it'll be tough to understand what he's, he's doing here. But he's, he's quoting from passages like Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 60, 61. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me, <laughs> as the Pharisees are there offended I had a friend text me this morning, and uh, he just knew some things that were happening in, in our family's life, and he says, and the analogy he used at the end of his text, he gave a bunch of stuff that was going on in his life, he's been through some similar stuff, was on the other side of it, and uh, he just said, God doesn't promise a smooth journey, just a safe delivery. Hmm. See, the problem for a lot of us is we get angry at God because he's not doing things he never promised he would do. But the reality is, God always does what he says he's going to do. And don't, don't miss that, because the exact circumstances might be different, but when you're frustrated with God, ask yourself the question, am I mad at expectations that I shouldn't even have of him? Or am I mad because he hasn't done something he said he was going to do? Because God always does what he says he's going to do. What he's saying here is John the Baptist is discouraged, is going, look, everything I promised you about the Messiah, I'm doing those things. You're frustrated, you're disappointed because of your circumstance. He's in jail, he's about to get his head cut off. Yeah, those are tough, sir. That's a difficult situation. God never promised that wouldn't happen. What he promised is what he's doing. God never promised you that life would be smooth. He did promise you he'd deliver you. So don't get mad at God when he's not meeting your expectations. Instead, look at your Bible and say, who is he? Because he always does what he says he's going to do. 
And then he goes on and he, Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 11, and he talks about how there's a group of folks, Tyre and Sidon, and if they had, if they had been exposed to, think about this, like we've got way more, to the stuff that Jesus has done in their town, if some of the towns in the Old Testament have been exposed to that stuff, they would have repented. And he says, it is going to be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Oh man, we've got a lot that's been given to us, Rally. And then Jesus says this, after giving some woes, some curses, woe to you. He says, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So rest isn't found in a day, it's found in a person. So take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is describing his character here. You'll find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, and that's what we just watched, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God? So he's talking about David, the king. He's a king. And how he entered the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read the law on how the Sabbath, the priests, so he's talking about a king, now he talks about these priests, the priests and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you something that, that's greater than the temples here. They'd be very offended to hear that. And if you had known what this means, now he quotes a prophet, Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is giving mercy, they're demanding sacrifice. He quotes a prophet, talks about the priest, talks about a king, and then he talks about himself because Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Remember the context, come to not observe the Sabbath, now make sure you're doing all the rules right. It was intended to be a blessing, has become a burden, and now he's saying, I am the person that's going to give you rest. He says, for the Son of Man is, and he's declaring himself to be God when he says this, and there's more to it, is Lord of the Sabbath. little observation that I've made, it's not from the Bible, it's just from watching life, reading my Bible, is that it's interesting to me, and you can see this on social media, everybody's probably got a friend like this, maybe you are that person, so you'll be the one who doesn't understand what I'm talking about right now, it's totally fine. That when you're in a really restrictive culture, call it legalism in the church, call it you know, whatever you know, subculture you're involved in, when you're in a really restrictive culture that has expectations of real specific behavior, you become really interested in how everybody else is behaving. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that, that it's the people that are in really restrictive situations that complain about what everybody else is doing? And I, be I believe, here's my observation, that the thought process is, I really want to do the stuff you're doing too. It's not, hey, they're not being godly, and I think the Holy Spirit must be taking a nap, so I'm going to help them out. <laughs> it's, if I can't do that, I don't want you to be able to do that. That's what I think we have happening here with these these Pharisees. Sometimes we blanket stereotype the Pharisees, like they're all just the same, they all believe the same things, and you think about how, how untrue that is, like that, you know, 900,000 people will attend our church, you know how many different views and beliefs there are going to be on our campus today? So if people just said, you know, the people of Southbridge, like, 
couple thousand years from now? Like, you can't just characterize everybody. You don't think there were Pharisees that thought to themselves? This, I don't think this is the way God intended the Sabbath to be observed. I don't. But for them to not do it, daddy's buddies were going to not like them anymore. They're going to lose their position. They're going to be invited to speak at the conferences. They're not going to be looked at well when they go to the temple. And so there's lots of dynamics that are taking place here. And Jesus is saying to all those people, the ones who are rejecting his miracles, John the Baptist who's doubting, the Pharisees who are watching what everybody else is doing, the people that are thinking, and the Pharisees are wrong, but this is just kind of where I am, and this is the way to God, and so this must be what God is like. Jesus is going, no, no, no. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. What is he saying when he says that? That's going to be our first point today. In our series, we've been talking about who is the chosen one. What does it mean to be chosen by him? So we have two points today. The first one's about who he is. The second one's going to be about what it means for us. He is Lord of the Sabbath, which means this, that Jesus is the maker and master of rest. He's the maker and master of rest. There's a reason why when he talks about how it's okay for him to break their rules, he's not breaking what the body, he actually isn't violating what he, remember he's God, what he intended when he created the Sabbath. The Sabbath didn't always exist. And, and, and I think it's pretty interesting when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you see Jesus' interactions. I mean, they talk about taxes, they talk about other stuff, they talk about healings and where that power came from. They never say, hey, that's not a real healing. They just say, you know, that's not from God. But often the arguments are about this day, the Sabbath. Interesting to any of you? And the reason why is because what had happened to this point, and we've all experienced this and are currently experiencing this in our culture, is that something that God intended for good has now been twisted and is now being used for the opposite of what God intended it for. And the way this happens, just a, I mean, we don't have time to get into all the intricate details of this, but the summary of it is by the New Testament times, the Sabbath was one of three distinctive ways that you knew somebody was Jewish. They were committed to this religion and they were a follower of Yahweh. Uh, the other two, uh, hard to imagine how these would be super public, uh, circumcision. <laughs> they lived in a much more communal, they had a celebration for it, I totally get all that. But I won't ask for a show of hands, how many times have you been asked if you've been circumcised? Probably none. All the ladies, amen. Yeah. Doesn't come up in conversation very often, not a super public thing. Unless you've got a bumper sticker on your wagon. Oh. The other was dietary rules, which, yeah, you, that's kind of, but the Sabbath, that was the one. This is how you knew you were committed. The Sabbath? The problem is it's been twisted. And so remember the context. Go back in the, in the passage. We're starting at the end here and talking about how Jesus proclaims himself Lord of the Sabbath in verse 8. But go back to the, the beginning. Those first verses I read to you were in uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. And he says, come to me all who are weary. Some of your translations say heavy laden. Some say burdened. And I will give you rest. Labor, weary, comes from work, labor. Um, some of your translations say all who labor. Heavy laden or burdened. This from, comes from carrying weights beyond what would be normal that you would have on yourself. It's, it's heavy on you, what you're carrying. And so there's this conflict here because Jesus is saying, you've got these people over here that are saying, throwing God's word on you and making God's word a burden. Some of you, that doesn't sound foreign because that's how you feel about Christianity. Okay, don't lose that. Don't miss that. 
Is that really what God intended? Has your experience with Christianity actually brought you rest? If not, this is definitely a message for you. Because what it means to Sabbath, it just means this, to cease. That's what the word means, stop. Collaborate and listen. It's all some of you here if you were born in a certain generation, so I had to mention it. What Jesus is saying is there's something that grabs a hold of you tightly. It's flowing um, in your life daily and nightly. It's work. Will it ever stop? <laughs> I don't know. I'll stop. I will stop. There we go. But what it means to Sabbath is to stop, to cease. The debate was to cease from what? And you know just how people work. Of course we're going to argue about this. Well, I think it means to stop from this. And I think it means to stop from that. So you've got to go back to where did it even come from? And, and when Jesus says he's the maker of the Sabbath, remember John chapter 1? He talks about he is the creator. Well, you've got to go back to the creation account in the very beginning. And there was a theme in the creation account. And God created and it was good on the first day. And God created and it was good the second day. God created and it was good the third day. You get to the seventh day, it says he rested. Have you ever wondered to yourself, why did God, if God's all powerful and he never sleeps and never slumbers, the Bible says that elsewhere, why did God rest? Hmm. Interesting. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 says this. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Okay, so Isaiah is referring to creation. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. And then look at the next part of the verse. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Wait. He's referring to creation. Maybe Isaiah doesn't know about the seventh day. How is it that an all-powerful God who never sleeps rests? Psalm 121 verse 4 says this, Behold, he who keeps Israel. I remember Hebrews we did a couple months ago. says that Jesus is holding the entire world, the universe in place with the power of his word. He didn't break a sweat in creation, by the way. Let there be light. There was light. <laughs> Spoke the word. It's not resting because he's tired. So Psalm 121, verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. But wait, did they not? Maybe the psalmist doesn't know about the seventh day. Unless rest on the seventh day wasn't because he was tired. So why else would you rest? Because you're done. It is finished. His work was complete. And then, in his creation, he's setting in motion, this is how life is supposed to work. And so the creation model, six days, he works. Seventh day, he rests. There's no commandment, though. We don't have a commandment for that. We don't have to do that. We've just seen it modeled by Jesus. <laughs> I love one of the statements that Pastor Dave makes. I haven't had a chance to go watch last week's message yet, let's be honest with you, and say that. I'm sure it was an incredible message, but I don't know, every other message he says this. What Jesus modeled for us, he meant for us. And so creation, we've got the model, but we don't have a command. The command doesn't come until the Ten Commandments and Exodus chapter 20. The Sabbath is an interesting one, and we're not going to unpack this part today. Christians debate, are you still required to keep the Sabbath? Are you not required to keep the Sabbath? People who think you should are like, uh, so you think you can murder people? 
Because that's one of the Ten Commandments, and you say you have to do that one, but you're not supposed to keep the Sabbath. And then people who say you don't have to keep the Sabbath are like, well, Colossians talks about don't get all uptight about days and not days. Listen, I'm not even going to tell you what my belief is on it. I think there's freedom within Christianity. But if you believe people are required to keep the Sabbath, be gracious. And if you find yourself trying to police other people's observance of the Sabbath, hold up. You're not (laughs) connecting with the right people when you read the New Testament, just so you know. So, what does Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 12 tell us when we're told to obey the Sabbath? Well, here it is. So, I'm not just paraphrasing it for you. Read it. Remember the Sabbath day. Okay, so the command, the action, remember, to keep it holy. That means it's different than the other days. Set apart is the word holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath. Stopping, ceasing to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male. There's not, watch out all the workarounds and the loopholes. Well, I can't mow the lawn. Hey, you go mow the lawn. <laughs> your female servant, your livestock, your sojourner, or anybody who's within your gates. None of your people. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth. He set the model, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. The very simplest way that you would interpret the Sabbath is this. What, whatever work you do for six days, don't do that on the seventh. doesn't mean you can't do anything. And the problem is, that's what the Pharisees started to say. You can't do any kind of work. They had 39 different categories of things that counted as work. I won't read all of them to you because well, it'd wear me out just to read it, but here it is. Sewing, plowing, reaping, binding, threshing, winnowing, washing, beating, dyeing, Sewing two stitches together, hunting a gazelle. Why just a gazelle? But anyway, slaughtering, erasing, writing two letters together. Because one letter is fine. One letter and lots of space. Like, what, I just, anyway. Pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer. <laughs> it's just like all kinds of stuff. And then within that, there were subcategories underneath all the 39 categories. So you you weren't supposed to look in a mirror because you might be tempted to pull out a gray hair and that would be work. Yeah, seriously, like you start getting into it and it gets so ridiculous. You think, well, we would never do that. We would never think like that. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, in your attempt actually to obey God, you've missed the whole intent of what I intended because Jesus is God. When I created this whole thing, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And the reason why he uses arguments about David, the king, and Hosea, the prophet, and the priest, he's saying, you already know this is how this works. And you see other interactions. He's going to, in the next section, we don't have time to get into, uh, starting in verse 9, he's going to heal a guy. And I don't know if it's being real personal to one of the Pharisees that they did this that day, but I would think, because Jesus appointed, that might be the case. He says, wouldn't you help one of your animals on the Sabbath? This is my creation. Let me tell you something. If you ever get so tied up into your desire to obey God that you start to not love people, you've missed it. And that's what's happened here. Their religion had become a burden. And let me just pause and say this. Some some people aren't here today, and some of you that are faithfully attending, and maybe you're serving in the children's ministry or leading a small group or doing different things, and... And you're like, man, I wish these people were so committed before they were in my small group. They served with me and they don't even come to church now. Um, What happened in the pandemic for some people 
Some people are just being lazy. They didn't come back to church. Some people didn't want to go to church in the first place. Now they got an excuse not to. Uh, we bump into them as pastors. We're like, oh, we're online. What, are they, what? You're online checking your email? What do you mean you're online? Because we got IP addresses. But anyway, you're online. I was like, well, we're watching. All, when's the last time you watched? Why? Well, we were busy last weekend. Trails off. <laughs> you're not online. Whatever. But for some people, for some people, what happened is that their Christianity was always an obligation, not an overflow of what was happening for them. And then what happened in the world? You just think about what happened in the world, like how tiring is. We all experienced some of, like some people didn't know if you're going to have a job, and there's literally like riots in the street you're watching on TV, and then if you go outside, somebody's going to virtue signal you did something wrong, like whether you didn't have a mask or you weren't wearing it the right way or something, you get altered. Somebody's going to be offended because you didn't care enough to offend them that day. Like something's going to happen. So you got like the social dynamics take place. It's just tiring. And then church starts back up, and you're like, I don't need more of that. If your religion causes you to move away from God, you need to repent of your religion and run to the reality of Jesus. That's where these people were. Yeah, there's John the Baptist, and yeah, there's the Pharisees, and there's a whole bunch of other people that just heard Jesus preach this. Uh, You can't get into heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. That's offensive to the Pharisees. Think about if you're just a normal person and you're doing the best you can, but you know you're not even close to those guys. I can't do it. Anybody here exhausted? You don't have to raise your hand. Here's some statistics. It's a big need today. Put up an infographic. I'm going to share some other statistics as well. Don't be distracted by two things happening at once. If you are, um, close your eyes. (laughs) In one survey, 77% of people say they've experienced burnout in their jobs. 77%. 64% of people, and this is after talking about they're actually passionate about their job, so they're passionate about it, but 64% say they're frequently stressed at work. So the answer is not just find something you love, like they're still, t- the majority of people do not use all their vacation days, 54%, 60, or 662 million vacation days went unused in the year of the survey. There's stressors, long hours, and and all that stuff. And you see on the stats on here, uh, 120,000 deaths are attributed to workplace stress. $190 billion. It's a bigger number than we can even fathom. On healthcare costs. And you would think that with the pandemic, like everybody, like working from home, lower expectations, like all those types of things that would get better. It doesn't. Listen to this. Since the pandemic, people are three times as likely to report mental health problems now than before. 40% of pastors are seriously considered quitting, not their church, but ministry. And you would think, if everybody's so exhausted and you're working from, like, just sleep. (laughs) Here's some stats um, that you would think. You know, sleep's obviously a multi-billion dollar industry. Or forget the stats. That's sometimes that thing bothers. Anybody here require, I saw a meme the other day. So it was like, Somebody did something that bothered somebody else. They're like, how do you sleep at night knowing you did this? And the bottom of the meme said, with the fan on. <laughs> Which I was like, yeah, I want to read. Ah, too many people be mad at me. So anyway, so enjoy it for myself. Then share it in the sermon. How many of you here would acknowledge, like, I have to have noise in order to go to sleep? Like, I have to have I think I might be addicted to noise. I'll go to, like, a hotel or something, be traveling, be like, how am I supposed to sleep with all this silence? <laughs> 
this is more transparent, but um, if you're bold enough to acknowledge it, how many of you would uh, say, I need medication, whether that's natural or some other kind of medication? You might encourage somebody else by raising your hand. I'm not making you raise your hand, but other people say that. I keep a little melatonin in my nightstand. If I haven't fallen asleep after a certain amount of time, I grab it, pop one, two, it's natural. And so, <laughs> so I want to let you know, like I'm, I'm sharing something about sleep here that I'm not good at. And I've been guilty of um, an arrogant, prideful attitude before where other people will talk about sleep or then they'll tell me, hey, what are you doing up that late? Or why does, because there's times where it's like, oh man, people are about to get up. I better lay down for a little while. And um, that is not good. And there are a lot of people that are exhausted, but they still don't sleep. Why? I read a really convicting article this week, and so I'm learning this still. So I, I don't want my, I still preach stuff, even if I don't have it all figured out. This guy's David Murray says this. Behind every exhausted person are bogus beliefs that must be identified and doused with truth. Hmm. He went on to list some. One of them is that you think that you're invincible. Like you think that you, it doesn't, it affects other people, but it doesn't affect me. When I hear the stats, and yeah, it causes all kinds of bad stuff, just so you know, um, but not me. <laughs> That's called pride, and I've done it. When you stop, have you ever noticed the world doesn't? Because you have a God who never sleeps or slumbers. He's working not just on the other side of the world. While you're sleeping, in your life, he's working. Sabbathing, stopping, ceasing is an acknowledgement of that. It's, a, it's showing you trust him. It's showing you trust him. Remember, Exodus is where the command comes at. And I've told you a thousand times uh, that the, the key to understanding your Bible is the context, context, context. We treat the Ten Commandments as church-going people really weird. Like, we've got to get back in the school. Do you know them? <laughs> it's not the point. <laughs> Why? Why do they need back in the school? We get them in the courthouse. What, you think, if you think that hanging rules on the wall makes people become better people, why don't you have all the rules of your house hung up for your kids? Like, why? Why? It's like we have this like weird, like it's this mystical moral desire that God has for your life. And maybe we're thinking about them wrong. The context, context, context of the Ten Commandments is that God's just led people out of bondage. So you think that he's going to then heap new bondage on them? This was meant to be a reminder. Remember the commandment, remember the Sabbath. So, oh, it's Saturday actually. It's Saturday again. No, that's not what it means. How many of you here remember, and so you're going to show your age a little bit, remember when it was like weird that someone that wasn't in your immediate family knew your birthday? Remember that? Before Facebook, Google Calendar, all that, I remember that. Now, if somebody doesn't remember my birthday, I'm like, you jerk, you knew it, and you intentionally didn't say anything. You're dead to me. Like, I'm done. So it's not like, like remembering and just going, hey, God, it's that day again. Like, it happens every week. <laughs> Setting apart, treating it differently where you stop. Is the, there's an action to the remembering and it's stopping. But that's not supposed to be a burden. That's a blessing. Because you, unlike him, do need rest. You aren't unlimited. You aren't invincible. You were designed to sleep. A third of our existence, God doesn't need you. A third of your existence is designed to be sleeping. 
And when you stop, what you're doing is you're remembering what he's already done. For them, in that moment, they've been led through the Red Sea, out of bondage, and God provided manna in the desert, provided for them protection, guided them through that process, delivered them. So the Sabbath for them was at least, at least an acknowledgement of God's deliverance, of God's guidance, of God's provision. A lot of us don't stop because we're like, well, if I don't, then it's not going to get done. And it's, maybe it's okay that it doesn't get done. But the, the Sabbath is more than that. The New Testament teaches us that. Hebrews chapter 4, we've preached Hebrews. I'm not going to go back through the whole passage. But it doesn't just look back to what God has done. It looks forward to a time that's coming when we will enter his eternal rest. And we get weird about that in culture too. You know, they're in their resting place. And I think some of us just picture like, you know, they're just laying there in the cemetery. No, in heaven, they're going to be running, they're going to be building buildings and running around and telling jokes and playing games and having fun and singing songs. There's a lot of activity, but they never sweat. What kind of deodorant is that? Like, no, here. There's no more sin. There's no more crying. You read... Genesis, that's this frustration from work, it came as part of the curse. The curse will have been totally reversed. What you're doing when you stop is you're pointing forward to that time as well. You're, you're reminding yourself and other people, hey, God's a deliverer, he's a provider, he's a guider, and there's a time coming, and you're testifying to that. That's what it means that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. For you, it means that you've been chosen for real rest chosen for real rest. That's our second point. Verse 28 of Matthew chapter 11. Remember, he says, come to me. Not come to a day. Not come to a new coping mechanism. Not come to some new strategies. Not come to a seminar. Not come to the mattress store and buy yourself the right sleep number. Come to me. All. But it's not an invitation to everybody because there's a bunch of people that are going to reject this and he knows it. You know who's going to reject it? Self-reliant, self-righteous, self-satisfied people. And they're all there, not just the Pharisees. But there's some people that are at this spot. Is this you? All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Same as how, and Peter, Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, cast your cares upon me. I care for you. Jesus says, for I am gentle lowly in heart, humble heart, gentle master. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. Some of us have been at that moment or at that moment like I was at in that marathon. You hit the wall and you want to be done. Like I was like, hey, get over here, throwing orange peels on the trail. Do you see that? You ever been in a conversation with somebody and you literally have thrown your arms up in the air? It's like a micro picture of what I'm talking about. Ever stomped off? You're probably too emotionally mature to do this. Ever stomped off from a disagreement? Mumbling at each other. Yeah, you do that. I don't know what you guys said to each other. I have one child uh, that she oftentimes will stomp off. And I talked to her about it one time when she wasn't super emotional. She goes, that's just how I walk, Dad. <laughs> okay. So the other day, I said something to her. She stomps off. I go, is that just how you walk? Then she slammed the door. I goes, just how she closes the doors, too. You're saying, I'm done, that's enough. Now some of you, and this is very serious and you might be watching, 
do that with life as a whole. And your eject button is suicide. Can I say to you, one, you're not alone. Two, we'd love to help you. Tell somebody today. But a bunch of the rest of you at least have fantasized about, like, I'm just going to do that. I'm going to go live in the woods. I'm going to buy a cabin, solar panels, and oh, it's just, life would be good if it wasn't for all the other people. <laughs> and all the introverts in the audience are like, if I talked in church, I'd say amen. So I'm kind of, amen. I heard your mental amen right there. Like, you're just, you're just done. You just want to go away. Some of you, did you see? Everybody, because we all have the same phone, everybody um, probably got an Amber Alert on Tuesday this week, and there was a little boy um, who was missing. We got a picture of him here. If not, you may have saw that picture. Uh, Bentley, this is his name, nine-year-old boy. And with 24 hours later, uh, he was found, and he had run away. The first article I read said, we just don't know why he left, but he's safe and he's reunited with his family. I said that to my wife, my motherly instinct. She's like, yeah, but is that good? Like, why was he running away? Uh, about a day or two later, I read another article and it said that uh, the family had come back and said, we ran away because he wanted to say, he was mad at us because we weren't letting him play video games. And so he was going to skip school and come back home and play video games all day. But then one of the neighbors, he thought, saw him. So he ran into the woods and he got lost in the woods. Oh, man. But most of us can identify with, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. That's who Jesus is talking to here. So he might be talking to you. In Mark's account of this passage, when the Pharisees come to him, and it was mentioned, and they put some of this stuff together in that chosen uh, series episode, Mark says that the Sabbath, Jesus said that the Sabbath is actually a gift that's given to you. Because he says, the man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Like, it's not just this day that I plop down on the calendar and I'm going, everybody else, if you love me, then do these things and obey all these rules. He's going, no, I put this day on the calendar as a gift for man. It's not a burden. It's supposed to be a blessing. It's been twisted and changed and turned. Get, out, get done with that. Come back to what I intended it to be. So whether you believe it's a commandment or not, it's not even the point. He's given you a gift of rest. Problem is, it's like an unclaimed gift for many of us. It's like, I don't know if you heard, probably not, I'm a bunch of Christians here, uh, but the lottery had gotten to $2 billion the other day. Can you imagine if you won that? Like, what would you do? I know you didn't win because we would have gotten a tithe already and we would have noticed that. So <laughs> well, what would you do if you won two? I think the take home was like two, a, a billion. I'm not a tax person, but I read the, about a billion dollars. Um, if you had a billion dollars, what would you do with 90% of that? <laughs> buy an island? I'd go, yeah, I would be gone. I'd buy a cabin in the woods and forest for mushrooms or carrots or whatever. Kill a squirrel every once in a while, unless you're PETA, and I totally got it. Like, what would you do? Could you imagine even, even thinking to yourself, I'm just not going to get, I don't want that. Like that's, God's given us this good gift. And it's like we're going, I don't, I don't want that gift. Unclaimed gift. And then we're mad at him about how things are going in our lives. <laughs> he didn't promise things were going to be easy. He didn't tell these people, if you come to me, I'm going to fix all your circumstances. He said, well, I'll take your burdens. But it's not in a, in a person. It's in the person of Jesus. Come to me and I will give you rest. 
Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And many of you, that's not what you hear. That's not what you experience when you think of Christianity and when you think of Jesus. I was talking to a friend in our church this week. He was doing a teaching for our staff and some of our leaders. His name is Giles. And he used an illustration and it gripped my attention. I had talked about uh, the movie Saving Private Ryan a couple months ago. But I talked about the beginning of the movie. He was giving an illustration from the end. I don't know if you know that movie or not. But there's a platoon that goes out to try and rescue Private Ryan. Um from the battle because his brothers have died. They didn't want mom to lose all of her sons in one battle. And so they go. People die. It's intense. There's a bunch of sacrifices. War is taking place after they have him. And Tom Hanks, who plays the leader of the platoon, has been wounded. He can't move. There's a tank coming towards him. Buildings are on fire. People are getting shot. Tom Hanks is shooting his gun. Private Ryan comes up, played by Matt Damon. I haven't seen the movie in a while. And Tom Hanks' last words are, earn it. Earn it. Giles uh, was teaching us as a staff, like we're, we're working on, and he's been a part of writing some of the information that we'll give to you, a way to be better at accomplishing our mission of making disciples. We'll call it a discipleship pathway, but we don't want to just give you another thing to do. No one needs another thing to do. We're trying to heap burdens on people. So he was teaching us about the work of the Holy Spirit and the freedom in the process. And, and as he gave this illustration, I always thought of that statement as like, it's calling him up. It's calling him to live a better life. And then Giles said, no one can handle that burden. Earn it. And some of you, when I talk about what Jesus did for you on the cross, it's overwhelming to you because you feel like you owe him something. Jesus isn't asking you to repay him. He's asking you to receive what he's done for you. Christianity wasn't intended to be a burden. You don't need to repay him. You need to receive what he's done for you. And some of you, you're exhausted because you're trying to live your life earning God's love. He's never loved you more than he does right now. And I don't know what you've been doing where you've been, what your week was like, what you've been thinking about during this service. God loves you. He wants you to receive that love. One of the ways you receive that love is accepting his gift of rest. You don't work for your salvation. You're not going to earn working out your salvation either. You're not yet a follower of Christ. Let me tell you what, you can't be good enough. That is discouraging news, but there's more news than just that. Jesus was good enough in your place, and he died in your place at the cross, and he's offering you that gift, and that's the gift you need to receive. If you're already a follower of Christ, he's offering you this gift of rest. It's not like just take a nap. That's great. Sometimes that's what you need. But it's rest for your soul. And if your experience in Christianity has not been that, then maybe you're experiencing Christianity incorrectly and you need to come to Jesus. If you're weary, come to Jesus. If you're burdened, emotionally burdened, you got bitterness, you're burdened with your sin, you've been carrying it yourself, you're burdened with all the things that are happening in the world around you, you're burdened with, I don't know, lots of things I would never imagine, God knows, come to Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary. The only reason you wouldn't come to him, the only reason you'd leave this gift I don't know your personal story and all your details, but I've read Matthew 11. I've read Matthew 12. Self-righteous, self-reliant, self-satisfied people say, not me, but everybody else, all come to him. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we come into your presence.
as a congregation and the people that are watching online, but individually, would you tell him your burdens? Would you tell him what's heavy? Not just what's heavy in aunt so-and-so's life that needs surgery on her elbow. Like, what's going on in your life? What are the things that weigh heavy on your mind that you want to control, that you, you might not want to say this, you really think God needs you to figure out, to fix? <laughs> and when you say that, you know, that means you don't need him. He needs you. Stop, cease, Sabbath that. And turn to him and rest. Hebrews 4 actually says to strive to enter his rest. That sounds hard. It might be hard to turn from your self-reliance. You might not want to say this, but your self-righteousness. Maybe you're the friend that's watching everybody else's behavior. That's harder to admit. And turn to him. Father, will you do supernatural things that I wouldn't imagine? Whether it's a healing, whether it's a change in relationship, whether it's wooing someone back to you, whether it's throwing a, a heavy curse, a woe, to people who won't turn to you. You do that. You know. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.